0: Imagine the classical story of an inventor, the lonesome figure working late into the night, bent over his or her desk, possibly in a shed at the end of a garden, or possibly locked up among the wooden attic beams in a draughty garret.
1: Hair out of place, cold mugs of coffee on the floor, the desk, underneath a bed.
0: In one corner, lit by a small lamp, they are bent over a desk, tinkering with some intricate device their invention, their labour of love.
1: Discarded prototypes litter the floor all around them, a record of months and years of spent effort, each flawed in one small detail that made them worthless as the inventor starts afresh, each iteration getting closer and closer to the final product.
0: It's perhaps just a romantic image, but this relentless drive forms part of the hidden story of the product. The user rarely gets a glimpse of it, but it is always there. Long nights, efforts spent on design and redesign that each ended up in a setback, failure and starting again.
1: A modern example is James Dyson of bagless vacuum cleaner fame. From getting his initial inspiration at a local sawmill which used cyclone technology to separate sawdust from the air, he claims to have gone through 5,127 prototypes before creating the DC01, the world's first bagless vacuum.
0: Now he employs over 10,000 people, all pushing the limits of design in their field. Just imagine the countless design iterations and failed prototypes that this company must generate.
1: Or what about Thomas Edison, inventor of the first practical light bulb, Not only was he benefiting from the work of other inventors, each undoubtedly with their own coffee-stained garrets, but he ran into his own problems, beyond setting a train on fire with an early laboratory.
0: Although sources argue how many exactly, Edison and his associates developed hundreds, perhaps as many as 10,000 partial prototypes for his incandescent lamp.
1: As well as developing the iconic light bulb shape, for which he had his own glassblowing shed, most of the effort went into producing the high-resistance filament itself. In his words, he carbonized and then tested no fewer than 6,000 vegetable growths and ransacked the world for the most useful filament material. Unsurprisingly, this is when he coined the phrase, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration.
0: So, What could we achieve if we can save some of that perspiration?
1: Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher.
0: And I'm Rian Owen.
1: In this episode we have partnered with the National Composites Centre to look at a new initiative, backed by the government and aimed at the UK's manufacturing sector.
0: In a world of ever more stringent standards and regulations, compliance is increasingly complex.
1: Advance is relentless. Each iteration of a technology is more advanced than the last. A modern family car can be more complex than a satellite, and with this increasing complexity it becomes more and more difficult to predict where problems in the design will arise.
0: In this episode, we look at a programme that is still in its early days, but which hopes to cut production costs and development times in half, and reduced waste, despite these growing complexities.
1: It will bring together some of the leading companies working at the cutting edge of design and manufacture, and will be located in the UK's largest advanced engineering and aerospace cluster, and a vibrant digital community,
0: The West Country.
1: But to make a success of this project, they need help.
0: The project is called DETI, which stands for Digital Engineering Technology and Innovation. It's a two-year research and development programme funded by the West of England Combined Authority and delivered by the National Composite Centre, part of the high-value manufacturing catapult.
1: The Catapult Network is a set of seven state-of-the-art technology centres, backed by public funding and nestled in industry sectors that the government considers strategic and
0: worthy of support. And in partnership with the Centre for Modelling and Simulation, the Digital Catapult, the University of the West of England, the University of Bristol and the University of Bath.
1: The plan is to bring in industry partners of which they currently have Airbus, GKN Aerospace, Rolls-Royce, CFMS, Siemens and together work on test projects to rapidly accelerate the digitalization of engineering. Companies bring their test projects along and can use the NCC's facilities to suss out what works and what doesn't. The idea is to allow different sectors to share knowledge and hopefully a digital wave will wash up the supply chain and throughout industry.
0: But what is the digitalisation of engineering? Let's start with engineering itself. Here is Mark Funnell, Head of Digital and Director of DETI at the National Composite Centre.
2: Engineering, for me, covers the, the last cycle of how we develop products. Essentially, starting at collection of requirements, managing those requirements, going through a concept design phase, Uh, into the detail phases, through into manufacturing, manufacturing, engineering, the verification of product into service, it's that entire life cycle of how that product has been defined, developed, uh, uh, and actually then how it's operating in service.
1: Engineering, then, is the holistic oversight of all these activities. So
2: digitalization of that process really focuses on the data that is generated and how we would actually glean intelligence from the data that is created in these parts of the life cycle. So if you imagine we have all these life cycles in each phase of this life cycle, data is generated, different types of data um, from, you know, stock box standard requirements, definition documents, all the way through to, you know, how is this product actually operating and performing in service, and down into the detailed CAD models and into the manufacturing information that is created off those CAD models. So all of that data is, is being generated, whether that's paper or digitally, obviously we want to move away from paper into more digital media, because the ambition of digital engineering is to look at how this data across the life cycle can be recycled, reused, and how we draw intelligence uh, from that data so that we can reinform our product definition and, and, and redesign our products ultimately for the better.
1: And that, really, is what digital engineering is all about.
2: It's around taking this data, threading it together in, in the right fashion and investigating how we use it to gleam intelligence and so advance and improve our product to meet market demands uh, for the future, essentially.
0: And why we need to adopt it is rooted in the efficiencies of the past and present way manufacturing approaches design. How we go about designing a product.
2: I'm going to focus on the design phase because that's really where a lot of what we call the, the shadow of, of change and inefficiencies is cast from the design phase. Now, now that really zooms in on you know, how well do the designers actually know about how the product is operating or how the product is actually going to be manufactured. So if you imagine the amount of work that needs to be done in locking down the definition of that
1: without having the right intelligence at the right time about what's actually happening in service or in the manufacturing.
2: It gets very difficult uh, to actually solve some of the change issues. If you make a change later on in the product life cycle, it becomes very costly because you've got the physical assets and the physical factories and machines that you need to update. While if you're making changes in the design phase, it, it makes it a lot easier. So the inefficiencies that we talk about around, one of the inefficiencies that we can enhanced in digital engineering is actually, how do we bring forward that intelligence? How do we bring it into the design phase where changes are less costly, where the impact of changes is is not that critical, and so that we can drive and and make the shadow, the shadow that design costs much less. We're talking about 50 or 60, 60 to 70% kind of impact that a good design has compared to a poor design. A poor
1: design being one that doesn't really understand how manufacturing is done or could be done, or one that is not able to validate how the product actually performs in service compared to its design intent.
2: So the digital engineering is about the concurrency, not just bringing the people together and making sure that the processes are there, but we can start to use the technology on top of that to actually bring the intelligence from the data that we collected on manufacturing or in-service into that design phase alongside the people and the processes of today. And it's about connecting those two worlds together.
1: The reason this is so important is the physical nature of manufacturing once you come to build. Think about the tools, the materials, the discarded prototypes littering the floor in our classical story of the inventor. Mark explains further
2: scrapping parts, uh, having to make a change to the tooling, having to make a change to the machines, the programs that actually go about manufacturing the, the product at the end of the day. When when it's in the world of manufacturer and actual verification, you know, there's a, a major impact in making physical changes and, and the costs are, are incurred as a scrap, essentially, or concessions or rework. And those are the hours really get calculated. And that's where the factories and the manufacturing team is sort of, you know, fall foul essentially. But most of the issues that they're dealing with there are not actually because they're not doing a good job, it's because the design itself is asking for constraints or parameters or limitations which cannot necessarily be achieved by that particular center or that particular machine.
1: In other words, it is not physically possible to produce all of what the designer wants with the tools and facilities available a limitation in design caused by a limitation in knowledge and in data.
2: And so it's this mismatch between understanding what the capability actually is in reality and almost in real time nowadays that we can collect information and how would we use that in order to inform, not no longer designing for manufacturer, we can now design from the intelligence that we get. But how that factory actually operates or how that machine actually works and the capability that, that that data from that machine can tell us. And by bringing those two things in, you can then design a product that is 100% manufacturable, and not a product that's 80% manufacturable. And so you start to reduce the, the scrap, the rework, the concessions, which is really where the biggest cost is.
0: That's digitalisation of engineering, and it is the aim of the DETI project to help manufacturing move to concurrent, digitally enhanced business processes and to upskill their people to capitalise on the use of the digital tools. But manufacturing is practical, so let's take a practical look at the challenges facing the industry
3: the future societal solutions are becoming fundamentally more complex. Like a modern-day saloon car, for example, is one of the most complex products in the market. It's more complex than an Airbus A380, it's more complex than a, than a satellite, you know, in terms of what it has to, to cope with. It's got a, over 100 microprocessors and over 100 million lines of code. So very few people understand that how complex actually a modern saloon car is that you many people get into every day.
1: This is Bradley York Biggs, CEO and Professor of Practice at the Institute of Digital Engineering. But he has spent 30 years in the automotive sector. According to him, most of that time was spent working on high-performance luxury vehicles at a range of companies. But more recently, trying to pivot the roaring 700-horsepower V12s of, say, an Aston Martin, towards a world
3: newly averse to fossil fuels and aiming for net zero. Let me take an example of a a Range Rover programme. A new Range Rover programme is is about a billion pounds, plus or minus. But roughly 40% of that, so 400 million pounds, is spent on the creation of prototype vehicles and the testing globally of those prototype vehicles in in three sequential prototype phases. So we, we engineer something that we think is going to meet the customer needs uh, and the market needs and the legislative needs. We, we, we build it, uh, it, we spend a lot of money on very expensive prototypes and then we see how it breaks or how it doesn't meet the customer aspirations or the legislative needs. We try and fix it and we build another set of prototypes and, and at every stage we hope we learn more, um, find mistakes, uh, refine the product and get closer to what the market needs. But that process, like I said, takes 40% of the overall budget of engineering a new car, and probably around 22 months. And again, this is just a generic model.
0: So it consumes a lot of resource, both time and money, and obviously natural resources as we fly these cars around the world.
3: So just one example of how we can accelerate that is how much of the work we do in that physical world could we move into a high-fidelity, or appropriate fidelity, digital world. How much could we simulate and assure ourselves will work? So ultimately, of course, I'm not being naive. We'll probably have to do some level of prototype testing, but it's more to validate the models and simulations that we're doing in the digital world, rather than learning how robust our engineering has been. So that's one way. The the other way is around engaging customers, using immersive technologies, such as as virtual reality or, or augmented reality. Can we not bring those customers up? It used to be okay where we could take five years to develop a car because the market wouldn't have changed that much in five years when I was an engineer. You could take five years to think about what the customer wants and what the market needs. Look at your competitors' set and engineer a product you think was going to sell in five years. If you did that today, you'd be hugely out in terms of the product you launched onto the market because the market is shifting and society and customer needs are shifting at a, at a pace that we've never seen before. So you just physically haven't got five years to, to get a product. So we've got to get that life cycle down um, so that we can be more assured that it's the right product to hit the market. And again, one way of creating that assurance is maybe engaging customers much earlier, where we've got something maybe in the digital world, we can put a customer in a, in a buck, put a headset on him, and they can in, in, interface with the ergonomics that we're planning for that future car. And the oem or the supplier can get feedback from the customer that again brings a level of customer attribute assurance much earlier in the process reducing the likelihood you're going to get it badly wrong
0: gareth jones is the engineering and technology director of the rolls royce defense business
1: as with mark and bradley for him, it is all about cutting out the manual, intensive processes – what he calls the transactional processes. This is the handing back and forth between manufacturing and design. His clients are mostly interested in a lower cost, quicker time to market, without sacrificing the actual product maturity.
0: He gave us a sneak peek at some of the concept projects he'll be looking at working on in conjunction with Detti although at this early stage, he says many of the details still need to be worked out.
4: One of them is very much around the interface between design and manufacture. So, you know, we, uh, we're we increasingly, increasingly looking to apply additive layer manufacturing processes in our products.
1: Otherwise known as 3D printing.
4: And the great thing about its novelty is that it will allow us to uh, design components in, in different ways than we historically have done because the way we have historically designed components will have been based on our historic manufacturing processes. So when you bring uh, bring along a new manufacturing process, additive layer manufacturing or ALM is basically 3D printing in metal, then you know it, it opens up the design space. Uh, it takes away some of the constraints or restrictions that designers will have historically had. And so, one of the projects, as I was saying, is really looking at so how do we make sure that we maximise the the benefit by having the best possible connection between what the design engineer wants to achieve and what the manufacturing process can enable, and having that uh, you know that that data connection between the two. So that we design within the process capability, but you know, right up on its on its edges, without going over or staying too far back.
1: And the second project relates to the supply chain.
4: The second project is looking more at and how do you, in this sort of digital age, interact with a supply chain so that they actually can perform, you know, to the highest consistent standard. So that, again, you know, there, there is a, a net gain, you know, a net benefit for us and for them as a supplier.
1: But they want to do it in a way that allows them to accelerate the main manufacturer's verification process. And the implications of this stretch further.
4: The ability to share data in, you know, in a near real time essentially between us as a company and the supply chain uh means that you know that the whole process can be accelerated and that data is everything from manufacturing definition you know material specifications down to the future scheduling of the volumes that we want uh you know you can you can see how the interconnection between different entities can be significantly improved and things that historically will have taken time you know originally it might have been transmitted by letter then later on it might have been transmitted by fax Then it will have been transmitted by email and now you can progressively see how actually you get to the point where uh, each other's executive systems are talking to one another and that transmission is is as good as automated, you know, within some particular constraints or bounds that both entities are happy with.
0: With his defence hat on, Gareth has insight into the data security side of the future connected supply chain. But it is outside the scope of this episode. We'll hear more from him in future.
1: Here's Bradley again, who sees digitalisation of manufacturing not just as essential,
3: but an actual race. My personal belief is when we wake up on January the 1st, 2021, we we will not just have moved forward by one year. We will have actually moved forward by five years. I think, you know, we would have got there anyway, but I genuinely think COVID um, will probably have accelerated our hunger for for new societal solutions to many of the the challenges we're facing in many sectors whether it be mobility whether it be air travel whether it be energy and i think the challenge for the uk will be how do we react um, faster than any other nation in the world that is 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 going to see the same dynamic how do we make sure that we get out the blocks fast to develop what society is now hungry for faster than anybody else
0: and the challenges, as Bradley sees them, begin with.
3: I think. I think the first one is um, understanding is is a big one. You know, I, I'm blessed with with a vantage point where I, I talk to many companies, but I also see what's happening internationally, and and that scares me because because I, I I fear I'm still having many conversations where people don't understand what I've just been saying. This is a race. This is the new space race. Is is creating future mobility solutions for the automotive industry. So, so I think there's an, an awakening that needs to take place around if we don't get out the starting blocks, our OEMs, our supply bases will quickly become not relevant globally, and, and, and that is a real worry. So I think it's an understanding of the challenge that we've got to use digital science and technology and deploy it in, in our manufacturing industries, just like we've seen great success in banking with fintech and pharma. So it's not unimaginable, this has been done before, but trying to get that recognised within our more, you know, historic, so established manufacturing sector, it, it can be a bit of a challenge. So I think an understanding, and again, coupled with that is also the cultural transformation that, will, that, that those, some of those companies will need to go on to genuinely deliver what they need to deliver. And the, third, the next one is intervention. We talked about this being a cross-sector challenge. Uh, uh, and, 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 and in many cases, it's not anything one company themselves can fix. So therefore we are suggesting it needs a level of central intervention uh, from government to drive the creation of some of these new capabilities and ensure that we do take a cross-sector approach and again coming back to DETI I think that's one of the, the, the challenges that DETI will have because naturally each of those sectors likes to develop stuff their own they understand we understand what automotive is so we'll, we'll just go and fix it ourselves it's all it's, it's hard work, work working out what, what other sectors are doing and understanding it so to help drive and bring down those barriers we need government intervention uh to 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 to, to help drive that change or incentivize that change across the sectors across the supply base and again geographically across the country
1: Bradley says that the first step is for government to articulate the importance of manufacturing to the UK, and that more must be done. But initiatives such as DETI are a good start.
0: Here's Mark Funnell from DETI again, with what brought him into this race.
2: We we need to be more effective and efficient in in the way we bring new products to market, essentially. Uh, You know, we all I'm very keen on, on, on net zero sustainability and our ability to make sure that, you know, the products of the future for my kids ultimately are not going to detrimentally affect their their way of living. And at the moment, it's I'm very conscious that it takes a very long time. And I've come from an aerospace background. It takes a very long time for us to introduce new product to market. And so the speed and cost by which we do these things need to be rapidly uh, improved. Made way better than what it is, more effective than what it is today.
1: And Mark says that for him, he is most excited about getting information from our machines, how we make our machines more intelligent,
2: both to interface with them and interact with them, uh, whether that be through you know tactile internet solutions or through haptics. But once you've got the intelligence of that machine, that machine, that machine can actually in theory talk to you about its capability whatever that may look and feel like, and I'm not talking about verbally talking to you, but the ability for it to communicate in a digital way to you around what it's achieving on a daily basis, and using that information in such a way that it, it um, automatically or actively adjusts your thinking when you go into product design. I think that's really exciting.
1: Machine intelligence is most valuable to us in this area when it is used to digest vast amounts of information and present it usefully and as needed.
2: What it does is it allows me as a designer to really not page through a 500-page manual, which is given to me, is actually allow the computers and allow the artificial intelligence solutions of these machines to actually tell me when I design something that, no, you know, I can't manufacture that at oh, all. By doing that, you're causing this problem and you're going to have to try and resolve it this way. It's about starting to engage as a designer with the machines, the factories, the manufacturing solutions that you're trying to work with and being way more agile in the approach by which we utilise this data.
1: Mark says that we need to figure out a mechanism to be way more concurrent, to start to produce products in a way more efficient and effective fashion. And there are tools in the market today, but not as prevalent as they could be.
2: And they're not being consciously thought of as digital design or digitally enabled design but we can't really move forward unless we can start to bring some of this intelligence from not just the manufacturing i've talked a lot about the manufacturing but also you know we're going to be putting devices onto products too so what does the product in service actually say about what i thought it would do you know we have constraints or conservatisms that we introduce into our designs today because we just don't know exactly what the loading conditions are, what the exact material properties of some things uh, are actually going to be. So the ability to bring that information from what's actually happening in reality as well as the knowledge and intelligence of the machines back into our design is only going to be benefiting the design solution ultimately. And that's really where engineering should be playing a big part is re-engineering products products that are better products that perform better are more effective more sustainable for future generations and how do we actually go about making sure this happens
1: but it all comes back to the data itself
2: but all of it relies heavily on us being able to get data from how the products are working get data from how the manufacturing system is working and glean the intelligence from that data so that we can actually make big differences both in efficiency improvements, as well as bringing products faster to market, essentially, so we can benefit for sustainability in our net zero agenda, as well as potentially making our businesses way more resilient in the future. Essentially. That's what really excites me about bringing digital into the holistic Engineering process. ultimately.
1: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own failed prototype is Rory Harris. Special thanks to the National Composites Center, Rolls-Royce, and the Institute of Digital Engineering. If your company would like to get involved with DETI to avail itself of the resources at the NCC, for example the UK's strategic 5G testbed, or just for more information, please go to www.deti.uk or email deti at nccuk.com. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter
0: and LinkedIn.